Our next speaker is Mr. Mick Wallace. Madness. Madness. This is madness. We cannot fix a problem caused by capitalism with more capitalism. They hurt the people. I ended up at the end of a gun. On three occasions. I don't well to survive anyway. Madame Daly will speak. A union which allows fiscal rules to be broken for arms expenditure, not for housing or to put roofs over the heads of people. This is evidence of police violence. Whether you're an economic migrant or you're an asylum seeker, nobody deserves to be treated like this. And even having the neck to suggest separating people from their mothers. How dare you? Bonjour à tous, nous sommes en direct de Strasbourg pour la plénière du Parlement européen. You are listening to ah, I4C Trouble with Claire Daly and Mikolas. Hello to both of you. And then... Bonjour Nicolas. <laughs> Now, everyone thinks Nicola is a girl because actually in France, when they say Nicolas, as we would do, as in Father Christmas and all of that, but it's actually pronounced Nicola, which is a bit confusing for Irish people because if we all tell them that Nicola will ring you as Nicola, who works in our office, they're all expecting a girl and instead they get this very nice French man. And if he was in Italy, he'd definitely be a girl. Yeah. <laughs> But here I am. I'm a boy. I'm a Frenchman. No, I'm a boy. I'm a boy. <laughs> and my mother won't admit it. Who signed that? It sounds the who? Spot on. See, I'm, I'm actually shocked at that myself. <laughs> I can't believe. But it's the way you sang it. You have know, an yeah. uncanny resemblance. I'm pretty good okay. at taking off the who. Right, very good. <laughs> right. Anyway, we're delighted that Nicola, our French host, is here with us in Strasbourg still. And this week, uh, so we are in Strasbourg, which has been the, for the plenary session, and it has been a bit affected by the health situation. I believe that, uh, Claire and Mick, you wanted to, to talk about COVID, the situation. Um, well, sure, look, at, I mean, everyone in Ireland is sick talking about COVID, but by looking on, it seems to be the case that they're not talking about anything else. So we said, sure, we might as well. And we had kind of begun to look at a few issues or talk about a few things last week. But even since then, people would have seen the riots in Belgium, uh, riots in the Netherlands, a move in Italy now to have a scenario whereby people can't even get on public transport and without uh, a vaccine pass. And I say a vaccine pass because actually, even though in Europe, when this digital green certificate was put forward to bring back free movement, which was one of the cornerstones of the European Union. It was supposed to be that you could show that you'd recovered from COVID, you'd had a vaccine or you've a negative PCR test, that they all meant that you were safe and you show your QR code and the person testing you wouldn't even know which one you had had. But actually, it has now become a vaccine passport in member states, because it's important for people. We get a lot of people contacted and say, what's the European Union doing about this? You started this digital green pass. And the European Union is responsible for the digital green pass, which is about movement between member states and countries. But actually, member states have taken that pass and have turned it into something that allows entry and in, uh, exit to public buildings, to schools, public transport and all that. But it's completely all over the place between different member states. Yeah, and I mean, when we initially voted on it, and we were obviously the only, I think we were the only two Irish MEPs mm, to vote against it. I think it was 40 voted against it. I was 705. And uh, 
we felt at the time that it was going to be discriminatory, it was going to reduce freedom of choice, and that's exactly what's happened. And Italy has just, for example, uh, as Claire was saying, uh, you could go to work in a, in a school, for example, with a vaccine, or if you had recovered from it, or if you had a PCR, but now they're changing it, and they're calling it a super green pass. Mm. And only vaccine will work. So if you don't get a vaccine in Italy now, you lose your job. Mm. And you won't get into a restaurant. You won't get into uh, public transport. So literally, they're making it compulsory to get a vaccine. And uh, the likes of Pfizer and Moderna will certainly be very pleased, given that they've made 24 billion uh, in the last uh, 12 months alone. Yeah, and I think one of the problems for the European Commission is how different countries are doing different things. Like there's a big... Uh, I suppose groundswell now to look at the idea of a third vaccine, the booster vaccine as it is. And it's changing like in Belgium now, it's for over 60s. In Ireland, it's for over 60s for healthcare workers or for vulnerable people. But in Italy, for example, this weekend, they brought it in for over 40s as long as your uh, first two doses are five months old. So that's been changed. So it's completely inconsistent. So people showing this pass in different areas, it means different things, actually, in, in a lot of cases. And um, it's a big problem for the European Union, that lack of, of consistency. You know, I suppose it feeds into the issue as well about, and my Italian teacher read me an article. I was supposed to be reading her now. That didn't go great, but sure, I tried in La Repubblica in Italy from two days ago where they were analysing actually the situation in Ireland. And it was very interesting looking at that from afar where they were saying they're trying to get their heads around the fact that Ireland has one of the highest vaccination rates in Europe and yet it has one of the highest COVID cases in Europe as well. And to be honest, they didn't really explain it that brilliantly. Like, you know, one of the things that they did say, which was a positive, is that there are less deaths in Ireland. Now, they're not as low as the figures in Italy, for example, but they would be better than, uh, say, Germany or the UK or whatever. Or Belgium. Yeah, but the cases of COVID in Ireland are astronomical. And they used the example of Waterford, where you've nearly 100% vaccination and it had one of the highest COVID rates in the in the country. So that needs to be answered. You know, why is that happening? And, you know, they quoted the Taoiseach saying about other measures and all of that and respect and social distancing and all of that kind of thing. But I find it hard to explain those figures, to be honest. Yeah, I mean, there is there's so much confusion about it all. And uh, there's one thing for sure. I, I know, and definitely in Europe anyway, um, people are pretty sick of how it's been handled. They're pretty sick of the lockdowns. Um, the Irish have actually been more uh, placid and docile about it uh, than most. Uh, whether the Irish have got their fill of lockdowns yet, I suspect they're getting there, mm. given that the government are pretty reluctant to go back to a full lockdown. Now, obviously, they never did a full lockdown anyway. It was, it was always selective. They didn't close manufacturing. They didn't close meat plants. They didn't close mines. I mean, you couldn't go see your friend in the evening, but you could go work in a, in a factory in and work all day with three or four hundred others. It was just ridiculous. Like, I mean, these are the sort of, sort of inconsistencies that are really annoying people. Aside from the fact that the vaccine is still very young, uh, 
we couldn't possibly know about any long-term effects of it because uh, there hasn't been any long-term. Uh, there's, it's, it's, only, it's still only about uh, less than two years old. Uh, so we're really playing with fire with the unknown. And uh, while it's accepted that vaccine is uh, reducing your risk of getting very badly sick if you happen to get COVID, that uh, seems to be established. Mm. Um, but we still have no idea. Uh, people are still getting COVID with it. Uh, and are they going to get long-term symptoms if we're going to keep taking these vaccines? And the idea that it sounds now like they'd like us to take a vaccine every six months. I mean, the Pfizer and these people won't know what to do with the money. It is an absolute printing machine for them. It's outrageous. Now, and of course, something that was discussed in the Parliament this week, just to touch on it, was uh, the fact that uh, the EU has has refused to force the pharmaceutical industry to lift the patents, to share the vaccine technology, to let developing countries make their own vaccine. And uh, I had speaking time on, in the parliament or in the plenary this week on it, and I pointed out the fact that the, the people of the Global South just want justice. They're not looking for charity. It is absolutely scandalous that we, our 27 member states had a meeting and not one of them expressed a concern that they should uh, uh, force the, the, the pharmaceutical industry to uh, share the, te- the knowledge uh, and technology uh, with the Global South. So in other words, and according to um, a, a COVAX, um, according, sorry, according to an Oxfam dose of reality report, uh, which said that COVAX has been a complete failure. And this is what the, the commission had been uh, repeatedly pushing as, as a solution. But in actual fact, the pharmaceutical industry, for example, uh, Johnson & Johnson was supposed to give 200 million doses to COVAX. to give them none. Mm. I mean, it's just absolute nonsense like. And I mean, uh, and the truth is that according to the same uh, Oxfam report, only 1.3% of people in low-income countries have been vaccinated twice. 1.3%. Now, we're not saying that it should be obligatory out there either, but God damn it, they should have the choice of making it themselves. Well, it's disgustingly insulting, I think, that COVAX thing. And Ursula von der Leyen and them are always pushing that because it's the kind of COVID version of charity-like. So these multi-billion profit-yielding corporations are going to give donate a small amount of vaccines to the misnamed developing world uh, out of their charity kind of thing. These countries have the ability to produce their own if the patent was lifted and stuff. So we did, uh, as we have been lobbying around that issue uh, in the parliament, there was an important vote on that. And the parliament has previously had the position that that intellectual property rights should be secondary to human health on a global scale because nobody is safe until everybody is safe. So um, it's good to see the parliament, you know, making a stand on that. But at the same time, there does need to be an analysis of what is happening in the global south because the facts and the information are that the levels of COVID and the numbers of deaths are at their most severe in Europe, which has the highest level of vaccination. Now, I'm obviously not saying that that's happening because people are vaccinated. That's not, but what else is going on there? Like in Belgium, for example, we have had, I think we'd believe, a freer 
way of going about it than they've had in Ireland. Definitely, yeah. Yeah, but there's lower vaccination in um, Belgium. Than Ireland, yeah. Than Ireland. There's not necessarily low, lower COVID cases. So it's not that, you know what I mean, Irish people went mad and were doing all this, you know, breaking social barriers that other countries were doing. Why is it like that? And I find that hard to answer. Now, there, there is, and as you said the last time, Mick, there's constant debates in our office about these things and we just want to tease out a lot of these points. But it does seem from the figures, obviously, anyone can get COVID. Whether you're vaccinated or not vaccinated, you can get COVID and you can give COVID. But the determinant to give COVID, you have to get it yourself. So the principles that we were all sort of adhering to in the earlier days of watching your hands and social distance and wearing, they are the key things. And and they still are, because if you're not breaking those boundaries, you can't really transfer it like, you know. Um, And I think you're itching to get in here, Nicola. No, no, exactly. But I mean, I think really, like you said, it is important. It's key, social distancing. And I will just take an example from France, for example, we saw yesterday a video taken from the Ministry of the West Indies, Outremer, Minister des Outremer, and they had this meeting room gathering maybe 200 people with no mask. And that was just an event organized by the by the, the government, which are promoting social distancing, but also this EU COVID pass. And I think that the EU COVID pass may have given some kind of pretend False security. False security. Yeah. And that people just totally forgot about the uh, social distancing yeah. Yeah. regarding with this virus, uh, which can be quite easily transmitting, uh, you know, just... Um. No, but the situation, I mean, I think the vaccine, like, the point has been made that, look, at the figures in Ireland say roughly about half and half between the people who are getting COVID, half of them are vaccinated. Uh, half of them are unvaccinated. And in terms of the hospitals and ICU, it's roughly that breakdown. But the important point in that figure is that in a scenario of 90% vaccination, the half of the people in in hospital are coming from that 9, 10% of the population, which means that in actual fact, more unvaccinated people are getting hit by the virus, which sort of does lend credibility to the idea that the vaccine, because it protects the person more from the virus, doesn't stop them getting it, but it attacks it quicker so that they have the COVID less and then they're less likely to pass it on to somebody else because they recover quicker. So there does seem to be some evidence to support that. Yeah, but there's one dimension not not being covered on this, and that is that uh, uh, I would say a fair few of the people who have not taken the vaccine uh, a lot of them come from uh, less well-off backgrounds and they might uh, have found it more difficult to avoid picking up the COVID anyway because of their social conditions. I think one of the things as well, which is not, it's got a little bit of prominence in the last few days, but not nearly enough, is the whole area of testing. Now, when the Parliament was bringing this in, all along it was because they'd say it's completely breach of fundamental rights to force somebody to have a vaccine. So the alternative of a test, because equally society has a right to protect itself in terms of public health. So it's a it's a balance, if you like. So the whole area of testing was supposed to be key. And in 26, 23 counties in Ireland yesterday, you could not get book a COVID test. Uh, and I think about 14 of them don't even have testing centres. Uh, they... 
the HSE's response was, oh, well, with, you know, 500,000 people looking for a test, that's just unsustainable. We can't do that. But like they were given extra money for testing, like because the parliament and others had insisted in the trilogues and setting up the digital green certificate that there had to be the provision of testing and not just testing, but free testing. I mean, you can't say it's an alternative to test if you have to pay 70 euros every feckin' time. Like, that's nonsense. No, it's outrageous and the testing should be free. But, I mean, the WHO were adamant from the start as well that testing is key. Mm. And uh, whether you like vaccines or not, uh, getting a test is fair, is fair, right? Mm. It, it, It doesn't, it cannot possibly uh, have any negative impacts on your own long-term health, whereas we don't know about the vaccine. Mm. So uh, you would have thought that the member states would have uh, continued to concentrate uh, very much on the availability of free testing because that was definitely key and well, unfortunately mean, they've fallen down there. Exactly and I mean particularly when we're dealing with a lot of the sort of eastern countries would have been had very authoritarian governments uh, in, in Stalinist times they still have them now in uh, the new era also but there's very low levels of vaccination there and the way in which you encourage vaccination is not by browbeating and threatening people and shutting down dialogue. It's by informed consent. It's by giving them the information and by giving them the alternatives. But you would think in these countries if they really wanted to protect public health that they would be providing free testing everywhere as an alternative in those countries where people are are more suspicious about what's been said to them by governments and so on. But it seems to me by shutting down debate on these things, it's just playing into the hands of, of, you know, people who don't want to get vaccinated as well. And people are entitled to not get, they're entitled to informed consent about what they put into their bodies. But the answer to that is not to threaten and develop hate speech and divide society. That's what's happening. It's really scary. Like, Oh, yeah. I mean, pe- people that have, have refused to take the vaccine are being ostracised and they're being accused of them of threatening the health of others, yeah. which is a completely unfair uh, position to take. Well, some people medically can't get vaccinated. That's absolutely legitimate. Some people don't do it for religious reasons or for ethical reasons or that as well, but, you know. But, uh, uh, but a real... Uh, constant theme running through all this I mean and listen we've made the point several times I mean of, uh, between all our staff I mean and there's 10 or 12 of us uh, and we can't even find consensus among ourselves and it is difficult to be sure of what's really happening but, but I think that the lack of real good information mm-hmm. is striking mm-hmm. like I mean I'd also like to know why I was making the point that 1.3% of people in low-income countries like Africa, let's just take Africa. So only about 1.3% have had two vaccines. Seemingly 5% have had one vaccine, mm. right? But they're not, they don't have high cases of COVID yeah. and they're not, there isn't a whole lot of people dying. So why is thing, are things worse in Europe than Africa <laughs> when Africa actually doesn't even have access to the vaccine? I mean, we need more information Mm. What is really happening? Mm. What's in this vaccine? And we also need information about any future deals that the European Union is doing with Big Pharma Mm -hmm. because everything has been taking place in a dark room and there is absolutely no information for it. It's all in secret. And that's not Even good enough. Even from MEPs. But it's not, know, it's not yeah, good enough. You know, in, in other words, you think that transparency could be quite effect- effective to 
maybe fight against the conspiracy or you know some yeah. beliefs misbeliefs maybe also on vaccines and uh, and that well, it's absolutely critical because when people legitimately say look at the actions of the pharmaceutical companies they've prioritized the contracts with the wealthy countries who can afford to pay these so it's not about protecting public health if it was they would be making it available to the global south instead of deals which were done like the the inverted commas free ones going to COVAX and all of that they're doing bilateral deals with countries that can pay for the money up front so the vaccines are going to those who have the money it's been a huge money spinner for those companies and unless the accounts and that information is in the public domain well then that helps people to see what's at stake for everybody and and make a choice on that basis and listen and people People know that Big Pharma operates, number one, for profit, 100%. And it's very unfortunate that, uh, that we have allowed public health to be controlled by Big Pharma, the private sector, who only care about profit and don't care about our mm. health. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Let's move on. Another topic, maybe we uh, probably uh, cover. Uh, what do There's you? There's only so much COVID you can take. <laughs> right there. <laughs> um, would you like to talk about uh, the presence of the Belarusian opponent? Uh, yeah, Mick loves her. This is the third, the third meeting of Mick and Tiganoska. No, well, I did. I, I purposely didn't go this time. I, I, I boycotted uh, her appearance in the plenary. It is absolutely disgraceful on the part of the European Union. What she said. Right. What I mean, well, I listen. She was there first. Tiganoska, is a minor opposition figure in Belarus. She isn't a serious uh, politician there. She's a minor opposition figure, and she's become the Guaido of Belarus for the European Parliament mm -hmm. and she's been promoted and she's been but I mean this is political interference the European <laughs> Union is given out about uh, uh, countries interfering in our politics they're forever accusing the Russians of political interference in Europe and the Americans have accused the Russians of interference in America even though they had no proof of it um, and here what are we doing we wheel in uh, and nobody from a uh, uh, low-ranking opposition in Belarus to tell us, you know, do you know what she said? Mm -hmm. She was given out that we weren't interfering enough in yeah. Belarus. She says sanctions really work. And uh, with one, in one vice she was saying, she was talking about international law, but then she wanted, to, wanted us to break international law by introducing sanctions against Belarus because they're illegal, right? So she's encouraging us to break international law by introducing more sanctions. And she was also she was also saying that Europe is being too timid with Belarus and that this is going to affect you. It affects Europe as well. And, and she, she was like as if she was really wanting an invasion. <laughs> it's absolutely invasion. scandalous. Right? Now, I had two opportunities at committee at Foreign Affairs Committee, to challenge her, right? She was as weak as water. She was absolutely useless. I mean, she's couldn't a answer my questions. relatively young woman. Her husband is in prison. Her husband was an opposition leader, but she is a considerable lightweight. She's been living outside the country. One of the things that struck me, and it always does in these cases, that if she was interested in being a leader of Belarus and representing the people, then she would have spoken in her own language, but she spoke in English. And I always find that as a sort of thing. So she's talking to a Western audience. That's who she's trying to influence. But if you really want to represent the Belarusian people, you'd be speaking in your own language to them and giving them a voice. I always feel, you know. Yeah, but could, could you imagine if the Russian parliament next week 
invited some far right from Germany or mm. France and gave them uh, the podium yeah. uh, and televised it uh, in, in Moscow next week. What would the Europeans say? Yeah. What and would they, they say? Turn around and say would they call it interference? Yeah. And they'd, be, they'd be damn right to what it would be interference. Crazy. I mean, she's calling in terms of her own country. She's asking for sanctions on her own people while she doesn't live there. But they do, like, you know, uh, for turning the screw, uh, boycott them in all international events, withdraw their ambassadors, withdraw involvement from Interpol, total isolation. It seemed absolutely lala stuff. And uh, she said, oh, Lukashenko is not the president, you know, and they all start clapping and cheering. It was embarrassing. Now, there wasn't that many MEPs there, really, considering they make a big hoo-ha about the whole thing, but still. Yeah, and listen, uh, all the research shows that sanctions hurt the ordinary people the most. They don't actually hurt the leaders. And even your so-called targeted sanctions, they end up hurting the people, not the individuals mm, that, they're mm, trying to, that, they, that they claim they're targeting. Yeah. Lukashenko will still be eating and drinking well and sleeping well, uh, no matter what sanctions Europeans uh, introduce, but it'll be the peop- ordinary people of Belarus that will suffer. Exactly, and if that's who she wanted to represent, well, that's where she should have been targeting as well. No, it was demoralising. It's actually embarrassing. That the it, Parliament it's an embarrassment for the EU oh, that made us show themselves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she was just totally, you've been very nice to us, but it's not enough. You've got to yeah. do more. You're oh, hesitating. God. You're hesitating. Be brave. Like, do you know what I mean? We need decisive action. I mean, for God's sake. Like, that's uh, talking about basically wanting an invasion of your own country nearly. Yeah. Anyway, Horrible. that's what you're dealing with. But, uh, yeah, so that was a kind of a low from the parliament yesterday, wasn't it? Oh, it was it was heartbreaking. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was followed afterwards, which was more shocking in some ways. The, we should pay mention it. Is there a terrible bus crash that took place? We had a minute silence afterwards about the 46 people, many of them from North Macedonia, who were uh, on holidays in Sofia and the bus that they were on um, exploded when it hit a barrier. And we were on that motorway, motorway. weren't we, Nicola? Yeah. Mm-hmm. We had been uh, on a trip to Bulgaria and we the Struma motorway is one where we had gone to visit environmental activists along that motorway because the very corrupt Gerb government in Bulgaria at the time had misappropriated a lot of EU funds in terms of the construction of uh, that motorway. Uh, a lot of the work had to be done again and again because it was done improperly. But not only that, uh, areas along that motorway pr- were protected areas, uh, UNESCO heritage or protected areas, and they breached that as well. So on the one hand, you had the EU, um, you know, saying, oh, protected areas and giving money for that. And on the other hand, EU money going to build roads uh, on it, but unsafe roads as well. And it's been documented previously uh, that people died, have died because of poor construction and corruption on the roads. I really hope that this incident isn't one of them, but it could be. And there needs to be a full and transparent uh, investigation. Horrific number of children dying as well. And of course, we had the appalling deaths of over 30 migrants as well in the the English uh, going from France to... Yeah, from Calais. Yeah. Oh, horrific. That doesn't bear thinking about. I mean, that is the the biggest number of casualties in that ocean. We were in Calais years ago and actually Irish activists responded really well to the the, the jungle and the camps as they were called in Calais where people have repeatedly uh, attempted to go to uh, the UK. We met loads of them there over the years and when the state 
broke up those camps, uh, people still went to other areas and still try every night to get across. And it's just another proof of how, you know, um, Fortress Europe doesn't work and is actually responsible for the deaths of people. You don't stop smugglers by doing what they do, securitise borders and nonsense. You only stop them by giving safe safe pathways for people to, to seek asylum and, and, and have routes to migration. Uh, but uh, sadly, uh, the majority in the, in the European Parliament have been in favour of, of building walls and keeping them out. Mm-hmm. And despite the fact that we've helped destroy our countries by supporting US imperialism and by arming countries like Saudi and UAE uh, t- to carry out a genocide, for example, in Yemen. Well, there's walls being built now in Lithuania and in, and in Poland, yeah. Belarus and that as well with the migrants there. They are being used as as human fodder and it's not good enough for the European Union to blame Lukashenko, who is obviously responsible in that case as well. But so are they by failing to uphold their obligations in terms of international law. There's, there's, still, there, there's still refugees, there's still people, yeah. right? And they're saying, oh, we're not letting you in because uh, Lukashenko... Uh, is 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 behind is behind this? There's yeah. still refugees, and they're mostly from Afghanistan and Iraq. Yeah, crazy. Mm-hmm. Mick, did uh, you? Yeah, no, I, I was. I was. I, I probably should just touch briefly on the cap because the final vote is on this yeah, week, true. and um, I got speaking time on it uh, because I had been the shadow for the, our group on the from the environmental side of it for the cap, and look at I mean, uh, obviously. Most Irish MEPs will vote for the cap, but um, uh, we won't. Uh, we're very disappointed with it. Uh, two years ago, um, I would have been far more optimistic that we were going to get a good cap. Um, there's a, a couple of dimensions, I suppose. Uh, I don't want. To, I know we've, we've talked about it before, but uh, from an environmental point of view, it is, it is a huge letdown. For example, the scientists had insisted that uh, the new cap would have to specify a minimum, minimum of 10% of agricultural land to be left uncultivated and managed in a way to encourage biodiversity. That didn't happen. They actually only came up with 4%, right? I mean, and then uh, on the other side of it, uh, there was always threats that there was going to be a fairer distribution of the money. They were always promising this. Oh, we're going to make things more fair. And it didn't happen. There's a small distribution of money to smaller farmers, but it's averaging out at something like 1,400 a year. It isn't going to make a big difference to the farmers in Ireland, for example. So what we're really having is we're having a, a, a cap for agri where big agri won the day and right across the European Union... 80% of the cap money, and we're talking $270 billion over the next few years, uh, but 80% of it is going to go to big agri, when none of it should be going to it. So in actual fact, the 20% that's going to the, to, to the, uh, to the 80% of the farmers that need it just isn't enough. And people should remember where cap came from. And the whole idea was mad anyway. I mean, what they literally did was they did, they did trade deals with poor countries in the global south and uh, parts of Southeast Asia, Africa, Latin America. They did trade deals where they were going to buy products, buy food from places where people are working for less than $5 a day. Uh, so the price would be really cheap. 
So they were bringing in all this cheap stuff and they were saying to the European farmer, well, you won't be able to compete with them because the standard of living is higher here. So we're going to write you guys checks every year. And we call it the CAP, Common Agricultural Policy. And that's where, that, that's where CAP came from. But it doesn't make sense. We need to readdress uh, these world trade deals have been a disaster for small farmers in Europe and small farmers uh, in uh, low-income countries. So the small farmers are getting screwed on both sides. In, if we were serious about protecting farmers, and I mean, the, the likes of the IFA at home would be saying, and the Farmers Journal would be saying that, oh, I don't want the farmers to get CAP money because I'm voting against CAP. That's not true. I actually want to protect the farmers in Ireland. Now, I, I, I don't think that 80% of the money should be going to the 20% richest farmers. But I also think that things have to change. And we need to... Ask, there's a whole lot of trade deals that shouldn't be happening. And right now, Irish farmers do not get paid a fair price for their product. And this idea of subsidising the fact that they're not paid properly with this cap money mm. is, is, listen, it's getting worse and it's not working. And mo- there's, there's small family farms in Ireland going out of business every day because the model is wrong. We've... We're not doing it right. We need to protect the farmers, pay them properly f- uh, for their uh, food and uh, help them to stay in existence because right now more and more we're going to continue to go out of existence. Well, it's very true that the manner in which society has been organised in Europe and globally is a huge contributor to the inequality that we see and it's very well articulated there in terms of the agricultural sector. It's also true in terms of the industrial sector and the services sector. And we should mark the fact that Black Friday this week was the Make Amazon Pay Day, uh, where we have workers there being super exploited um, to allow Jeff Bezos go off uh, on his little space trip. But one of the figures being used, and we're happy and delighted to be part of the parliamentary alliance all across borders everywhere to make Amazon pay. Um, that uh, during the pandemic, Amazon yielded profits of 690,000 per worker. Unbelievable. As they said, they could afford to give each one of their 1.3 million workers a pandemic bonus of 690,000 US dollars, dollars, sorry, each and still be as wealthy as they were before the pandemic. They pay no taxes. The environmental degradation, the impact on our data rights and so on are immense. So I think it's great that that movement has started and we were glad that we had the opportunity to raise it in the parliament here uh, this week. So, yeah, people are protesting, which is good. I think we covered pretty much the topics today at the plenary. What about our friends in Belgium? Viva! You see, these French people, you see now there's uh, French people and Belgian people, a little bit of tension there now, you see. Nicolas is actually not Belgian, even though he's speaking beautiful French. That's because he's French. And um, yeah, I think they've a bit of a problem with Belgians. Have you? We don't have, we don't have. I mean, uh, they have it's a problem true with since they're, no, not with me, but uh, <laughs> not with us as yeah. well. But it's true that since the... Uh, 2016 European Championship, I think, or the 2018 World Cup. There we, we have seen the emergence of a rivalry, rivalry against France and Belgium, uh, specifically in football. Uh, but Because Belgium have got a bit better now. No, just because we beat them <laughs> like two times in the semi-finals. No, um, and the Belgians no, do Nicola, love their football. Yes, 
<coughs> Nicola is right. Uh, the, the French are probably still a little bit better than them. But the Belgian side is excellent at the moment. They have a lovely football side. And, and a huge following. Uh, Massive support. Now, it was Italy that beat him now, of course, in the European Championships, in the quarterfinal in Munich this summer. Uh, but it was France that beat him uh, in uh, the World Cup uh, semi-final in, in Russia in 2018. So, uh, But they have a lovely team and players like Lukaku, De Bruyne uh, and Hazard. Uh, Mangalan. And, and well... It, and well, Nangle is not in the squad, and Nangle has been a, an amazing Belgian footballer. Uh, but he himself and the manager didn't get on. And I actually thought, especially in 2018, and has passed his best now, but in 2018, Nangle was one of the stronger players in Europe. And uh, Martinez, the manager of Belgium, refused to put him in the squad because he found it hard to, to kind of discipline uh, Nangalan. And but I thought a stronger manager would have managed them better, because I actually think that Belgium could have won the World Cup in 2018 if they had Nangolan. I really do. Uh, he, he's a, he was an incredibly powerful player at the time, um, and uh, I think it was a mistake on the part of Martinez. It's like the French leaving Eric Cantona out. Another great guy. In fact, best thing ever happened to France. Apart from you, Nicola, was was Eric Cantona. <laughs> Have to be honest. I'm just too sad. I will, I'm, I'm maybe a bit young to. I've, I've never seen a Cantona play yeah. in, the, in the French squad, but uh, I've seen some uh, things on YouTube, uh, and uh, I know that he was pretty good. Also, kicking some uh, yeah, supporters in the stadium. Yeah. Oh, poor Crystal Palace fan. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, Cantona was a wonderful footballer, no doubt about it. Yeah. But Belgium. Yeah, what a great place. We it's, like it's Belgium. A, it's an interesting country. Everyone um, thinks they're real boring, but it's actually a great spot. Yeah, well, I mean, Brussels is a good place to live. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Uh, the population, um, a little bit, bit more than double Ireland, 11.5 million. Um, and uh, I suppose Brussels is, is, is bigger than Dublin. Mm. Um, seemingly in greater, in greater Brussels, um, there's about 2 million, which mm. is big, like. Yeah. Now, I suppose um, COVID has been generally worse in Belgium than a lot of countries uh, from the start. But it's directly linked to the fact that Belgium is a real hub. And there's an awful lot of things happening in Belgium. Uh, there's an awful lot of people coming and going all the time. They have a, a powerful rail system and an awful lot of people uh, come and go every day uh, in, in, into a place like Brussels and into the other cities as well. And uh, I think that would have contributed a bit uh, to the spread of COVID in Belgium. Well, I think they handle it better. I mean, uh, there certainly wasn't the obsession in the media the way it seemed to be in Ireland. And it's a very well-run society. It's an interesting place uh, because it's broken down between these uh, Flemish and French areas, which is unusual. And they have different languages, obviously. Um, they 48, 58% of the population is Flemish, uh, 31% is Walloon and 11% are in Brussels. So the official languages are Dutch, French and German. 
but actually English is widely used as well. And you know, people would think that Brussels is very much European institutions boring, but historically, probably largely thanks to their colonial plunder, they have uh, very nice buildings and uh, architecture and so on. Um, and I think that the mix is good. So the ethnic origins, nearly, you know, less than 70% of Belgians are of Belgian origin, um, just under 20% are of foreign en- uh, origin, and about 12.5% are non Belgians. Um, these have come from the EU and all that. So you have a load of you know, EU people there include about 15,000 Irish people. So it's a lovely mix and you hear different languages and it's pretty safe. Now, there are parts of the of the Dutch speaking areas in particular where there would be elements of, you know, far right racist groups and so on. But we find culturally Brussels to be very mixed, really, don't we? Yeah. And I mean, I mean, my apartment is in San Gilles and uh I mean, I actually find the figures a bit different to what they are nationally. I mean, I, I would have thought that San Gilles was about uh, a third Muslim, a third black, and the other third a mixture of Belgians and other Europeans. Which, but and but there's a lovely atmosphere among them all, and there isn't. Uh, I, I don't see that real open racism not in San Gilles anyway. I, but I, I'm told that it is in more uh, deprived areas that there's a bit more of it. But that, that generally speaking, though, I think there's less racism than normal, uh, where you have such a mix of ne- cultures. Yeah, I mean the two. They've had, I suppose, all the time to balance the two communities: the Flemish speaking, the French speaking, and they've been without governments for nearly at one stage, nearly two years, and they managed fine. But in terms of our political colleagues, Belgium, there's some serious operators in the in the European Parliament who are for Belgium. I mean, they've twenty MEPs. They're spread evenly enough across the political groups. I mean, have you come across any of them in your committees? Make anybody impress you? Well, obviously, for us. Uh, the most impressive has to be Mark Botenga. He's in uh, the GUI group and one of the most impressive members in it. And uh, he's part of the of the, uh, the Workers' Party in Belgium. And uh, but he's he's really good. I've, I've, I find him. I'd be very impressed with him. Now I, I we know Maria Arena, mm. and you probably have. She's is she on the Libe committee? No, isn't she? No, don't but, think so. But. Um, I see a good bit of her. She's she's, on on, she's, she's the chair of she's on foreign affairs. She's on the chair of Deve of the so right, she does yeah. a lot of the kind well, of human I, rights. I, I see a good stuff. bit of foreign affairs. Yeah. She's actually she's she's decent enough, even though I mean she's probably a little bit right wing, but um, she's done good work with Julian Assange with us yeah, and stuff no, no, as well. And she's, no, she is she's good. Bit, certainly yeah, to the left yeah. of the S and Ds for sure. She would be. She yeah, would but be, I mean, the majority yeah. of S and Ds are right wing. I know that wouldn't be her. You see, your man in the S and Ds as well is Mark Tarabella. I I I I engage with him a lot. I know him he's an Inter Milan fan. Oh, his, his the father, older his, fella. His father yeah. is Italian. Yeah, yeah. and uh, he's nuts about Inter Milan, and yeah. uh, he watches Italian football uh, morning, noon, and night when mm-hmm. he gets the chance. So uh, the two of us end up talking about Italian football a good bit. Um, your man Philippe uh, Lamberts, I think he's the, the the actual leader of the Greens. Is he that is. right? He is. Okay. He's, yeah. 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 Then of course we'd have Charles Michel, of course, the EU Council President, who I find so unimpressive that is not funny. 
He is an absolute dum-dum. Like, it's just... Be- and he was, he was a Prime Minister. embarrassment. Like, he he know, resigned yeah. as Prime Minister to, to take up he's this role. He's an absolute role. Chancellor. Like, he can't Absolutely. even put two words to... And, you know, it kind of reminded me, like, he was even worse than Charlie Flanagan used to be at the Justice Committee when Charlie come in and waffle on and talk nonsense when a question... He, your man, Michelle, does exactly the same thing. He is a horror scene. And, I mean, there are... I mean. A number of the MEPs that buy and sell them. I mean, for me, there's a, a young woman, Saskia Brickmont uh, from the Greens. Very impressive, very capable uh, young woman. She, for me, is the best. And then on the negative side, you have that horror scene that is Giver Hofstad and Hilda yes. Vautmans, who are in the Renew group. I mean, these are ultra right wing liberals like who actually for Hofstad is a bit of a ha- has been now. He he dominated in previous times and was the leader of the Alde group in the last plenary ultra, uh, you know, behind the drive for EU militarism, ultra libertarian, right wing, not nice people. But um, anyway, you can't talk about Belgium without speaking about beer and chocolate and waffles, waffles. Uh, I've never had a Belgian waffle, but neither have I. So I haven't really noticed the waffles smudged by it, but I love Belgian chocolate. And there's an incredible number of Great small breweries here. Now, I mean, obviously people know all the those famous Belgian beers like Duval and uh, a few others, but uh, I, I prefer the small breweries and there's, um, there's, there's about a thousand different bottled beers that you could drink uh, in Belgium. And uh, they're just so good. And there's a, there's a real strong uh, craft beer industry on draft now uh, as well, and oh, it's, a, it's a great place for beer. And the Christmas and, and the Christmas markets are open, so yeah, that's pretty good. So people should don't write it off. It's a nice place to come and visit. Um, I see where, according to the Irish Embassy, that there's between ten and fifteen thousand uh, Irish living in Belgium, mm. And, mm. and they wouldn't all be attached to the EU because, for some strange reason, Ireland has less than its quota. Mm-hmm. Uh, working in the EU yeah. institutions, which I was kind of surprised to hear. Yeah. And look, from the point of view of our listeners, because a good thing, and we'll finish on, I know we need to finish up, but we've had a number of teachers who listen in, which is really good. And from the point of view of schools, the Parliament, if we get over the COVID and the visits reopen to the Parliament, the Parliament does sponsor visits. We get a certain number of invites every year that we can bring groups over and the Parliament pay the accommodation and the travel. And it's a great way of opening up the EU institutions. And for us, it will be particularly important to do that with schools and particularly those in in disadvantaged areas and that as well. So uh, any teachers of politics in those, uh, you know, older years in secondary school should certainly pencil in that idea that we could bring groups of 10 to 20 over, uh, presuming the parliament reopens fully in the new year. Yeah, no, I mean, the people that have come over uh, to date have really enjoyed it. And uh, they're actually uh, almost... Almost 100% of them have been surprised yeah. uh, uh, to to actually find yeah. Brussels such an interesting city yeah. and such a nice city when they weren't really expecting much from it. Mm. So the last word to our French friend. Well, thanks to both of you uh, for this podcast that was done for IFOC Trouble for this week. Uh, and uh, I hope we'll have again the opportunity to do another podcast together. Yeah. Oh yeah, poor old, poor old Damien is kind of getting. A bit I know he's getting kind of, kind of. You see, what happened here was apart from Damien sort of stepping out of the loop, and then Kira came in. 
And then Kira couldn't do it. So Bethany came in and then you see Nicola saw English accent there. So the old rivalry between the English and the French came in. So Nicola wanted his bit as well, like, you know, so, yeah. Now, and when when Kira and Bethany were doing it, uh, I mean, it should be added that Damien wasn't available. So it wasn't like he was. Oh, absolutely. No, 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 no. They were and, all Damien not being available. And our there. podcast earlier this week when we were well, covering it was, it was Cough, the Damien show. It yeah. was the Damien show. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, it was myself true. and Claire, the two MEPs, asking the great Damien Thompson questions. Very true. And uh, Damien uh, uh, lording the show. Anyway. So thank you, our favourite French employee and wonderful <laughs> good friend, Au revoir. Au revoir. Au revoir.